Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by my co-host to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, before that, I had the distinct privilege of talking this week with Peter Lightheart, who is the president of the Theopolis Institute, which is located in Birmingham, Alabama, and is dedicated to the study of the Bible, liturgy, and culture. And Peter is the author of many books, but most recently, Delivered from the Elements of the World, Atonement, Justification, and Mission. I give you my conversation with Peter Lightheart. On the Mockingcast for the first time, the Reverend Dr. Peter Lightheart, who has been so many things. Peter, you've been a pastor, a church planning pastor, professor, husband, father to 10, right? No, you, you were father to 10 and a pastor and a professor, and we're writing lots of books all at the same time. Where'd you find the time? Do you sleep? I, yeah, I sleep a lot. My life is pretty simple. I'm, I, I have a family. I do my work and I don't have hobbies. So it's kind of pared down. No hobbies, not one. Well, I'm, you know, I, do, I, I mow the lawn now that we've got a lawn to mow and I do some yard work. You, you, you shamar the garden, your little corner of, of, the, of, the, of the creation. Now, you have, a couple of years ago, moved from Moscow, not Russia, but Idaho, to Birmingham, Alabama, to start the Theopolis Institute. Now, tell me about, like, I, Institute, it's such an evocative thing. Like, is it like a bunker? Is it like an old sort of 17th century kind of building that's like, you know, got lovely chandelier? I mean, what, what, what is this? Tell us about the Institute itself. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're asking me now because we actually do have a physical presence. We didn't for the first couple of years. I was working out of my home office, but uh, we don't have a 17th century uh, chateau. I don't think there are any in Birmingham, actually. Um, we have an office space in an office park, but the, the Institute consists of myself, James Jordan, and uh, some associated support staff. And we do uh, leadership and pastoral training courses mainly on biblical topics and on liturgical topics. We're in a we're in, um, tradition, and uh, particularly on the liturgical side, it's an area that uh, our part of the church has not given much attention to. Uh, James Jordan and I have been working on liturgical theology in different ways over the past 20 years, and Theopolis is uh, an effort to try to pass that on to students in, a, in the next generation. So you're trying to get Reformed and Presbyterian types to not just do things decently in order, but with a little bit of liturgical style and sensibility. That's right. Yeah, the liturgical the liturgical aspect is an important part of it. Uh, and also, uh, we're doing biblical studies, which every uh, training institute does, but uh, we've, we're interested in looking uh, more deeply at the scriptures, looking at the uh, literary structures, uh, looking at the theological dimensions of, of scripture, kind of in some ways reviving kind of patristic and medieval modes of interpretation in in a modern setting. We want to have a rich biblical theology and that we want that rich biblical theology to shape worship. And we also think that worship is the the driver and the shaper of culture. So my guess is you're not big on smoke machines like in worship. Well we don't we we haven't uh we haven't advocated for those unless you're talking about a sensor. A sensor and incense that would be okay, right? Of an ancient smoke machine 
I like that. In that case, um, we think there's some biblical grounds for that. Yeah, I like that. I like now. It, a lot of our listeners are pastors or people that are training theologically. If, if they want to, what do they do if they want to come come to the compound, come to the office park, and get their swords sharpened, so so to speak? We, uh, we have three uh, week long courses every year. Uh, we're having one coming up in the early part of August, and that'll be on the Book of Leviticus. Uh, we have a course on. Uh, liturgical space and architecture in March, and another one on political economy for pastors in May. Uh, and if they want to sign up for those courses or find out more about them, we have a website, theopolisinstitute.com. And we're also working to get an, a year-long program started. Uh, we want to have a, a small in-house program where students spend a year with us uh, studying the Bible together, uh, learning the liturgy, and not just learning about liturgy, but actually doing the liturgy. That's we do morning prayer, noon prayer, and and evening prayers. We eat meals together, and it's a full-bodied week organized around the liturgy. So, like, there's the the new monasticism. You're like the new new Protestant monasticism. You're like uh, I, 2.0. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess so. <laughs> now, Peter, you've written a ton of books. Your most recent book is "Delivered from the Elements of the World: Atonement, Justification, and Mission." You say in the intro, this is like your big red book, like Mal's little red book. This is your big red, but this is like kind of your theological theory of everything. Yeah, I was interested in doing something on sacrifice and atonement. I've been interested in that for a long time for various reasons. I've done work on uh, justification and so that aspect of soteriology. So I've been interested in doing more on that. And then I had thought about, uh, to a lesser degree, but had thought about comparative religions some. And, and uh, uh, several years ago, I hit on the idea of a way of combining all of those interests into a single treatise. And that's what... Uh, that's what this book is. Now, you come up with this word. You're playing on the stoicheia, right, in the Greek. I, I'm sure this is going to be a common household word. You talk about stoicheic, like things being post-stoicheic or the stoicheic problem. Tell us, like, make the case for stoicheic becoming a basic building block of all of our listeners' theological vocabulary. Yeah. Well, it's admittedly, it's a, it's a side issue in Paul. I'm picking up a phrase that Paul uses on several occasions, and uh, he uses the phrase, uh, the uh, elementary principles are the elements of the world, stokeia to kosmu. But when he does that, he, bring, he brings it up in important context. He brings it up, I'm looking primarily at Galatians and Galatians 4, where he speaks about deliverance from the elements of the world in the context of talking about the sending of the Son and the Spirit. And in, in the context where Paul brings up stokeia, he's almost immediately talking about certain institutions, practices, and prohibitions of Torah. So Colossians 2 would be one place. I think it's there in Galatians 4 also. When he brings up the elements of the world, he speaks about calendrical issues, about uh, keeping days and months and seasons and years, and warns the Galatians that going back under uh, a calendar is going back under this uh, system of elementary principles. In Colossians, it's uh, taste not, touch not is the uh, illustration or the example of a storkea. So, the so it was partly from just meditating on Paul's usage. Uh, it's the phrase is used typically in Greek literature to describe the physical elements of the universe. You know, the four elements of the Greek physics. Those are the storkea to cosmo in in a standard Greek uh, you know, Greek treatise. But uh, when Paul uses it, he uses it in context where he's talking about the law. And so I, he uh, seems to use the phrase, but use it. Use a standard phrase, but use it in a sociological or social communal kind of dimension. So he's talking about the, uh, I use the phrase, the social physics 
or the religious physics of the ancient world. So it's partly coming out of a meditation on Paul's usage, but then looking at the particular things that he associates with that and also looking at Testament institutions. Uh, I realized that there's a, there's an, an enormous amount of continuity between ancient religions outside of Israel and what Israel does. You know, all of, all ancient religions have sacrificial procedures of one sort or another. Uh, most of them have some sort of temple system, um, a, a holiness spectrum, where there's certain spaces and places that are sanctified and other spaces that are profane. Uh, most of them have some kind of uh, purity system where uh, certain kinds of things are uh, polluting and defiling and um, things that you avoid touching or having contact with. Looking at Paul's usage and then seeing this broader uh, this broader spectrum of practices in the ancient in ancient religion and culture um, um, began to I was working out the uh, Stoichia stork- became a way of thinking about uh, Israel in the midst of the nations and how Israel uh, was in continuity with the with the with pagan religion and culture and how they also were uh, kind of an alternative to ancient pagan religion. Now, if will you will you feel like successful if you start seeing hashtag stoichaic or hashtag post you know after yeah like maybe it'll become like a hashtag but you it's really interesting and i think it's in chapter three you have this so part of what you're thinking about in the book here is like what as you're saying what israel has in common and over against other ancient traditions and how they put together cosmology you sketch like Jewish, Egyptian, Babylonian, and Greek religion through this like a, a first person Jewish travel log. I mean, it's it sort of breaks genre in the middle of the book because it's really interesting. Well, uh, I'm glad you found it interesting. I wasn't sure it would work, and it, I thought um, worried it was might be a little bit too much of a genre break. Well, I started writing the chapter as uh, kind of a, a standard scholarly uh, treatment of uh, of uh, uh, several different commonalities in uh, in these different. Uh, in these different ancient, ancient cultures, ancient civilizations. And I just found it, I, I found it tedious to write, and I figured it would be tedious to read. That's a good sign, right, as a writer. If, like, hey, if I'm bored writing it, people might be bored reading it. So it, this was, it was a way of getting the, getting the information across in a way that was more, more accessible, and also I, I hoped it would be more entertaining. Then after that section of the book, Torah, you say, in light of like East of Eden, Torah serves as both a remedy to, but also in a strange way, is perpetuates the, the stoichaic bondage. I'm trying to use stoichaic as many times in the context yes. of this interview. So it Going for that hashtag. We want the hashtag. Exactly. Then I know, then, then I know if, uh, I, can, I can die a happy man if I, exactly. if I get a hashtag. Then uh, Torah uh, is introduced into a world post, uh, post-fall, obviously, uh, and post-Babel. So you have... Those uh, I'd set uh, uh, set up Israel's history against the background of those two those two falls. You could you could expand on that or uh, stoichaic reality. Like uh, those are the two main points that I'm using as background, and I think that's really important for understanding what Torah is about. You know, it's something like sacrifice. Uh, what is sacrifice intended to do? Um, you know, historically, I think Christianity has uh, considered sacrifice primarily in terms of. Um, uh, substitutionary death. You have some of that in uh, con- contemporary discussions of sacrifice with people like Rene Girard, where the, the core of sacrifice is uh, an act of sacred violence, a kind of founding act of sacred violence. But the emphasis is on the death of a, of a substitutionary, of a substitute animal. If you look at the actual rites of sacrifice in Leviticus, and then put that in the context of uh, Eden and the exclusion from Eden, uh, I think what you're looking at is sacrifice as a 
an entry right or a re-entry right. Adam and Eve are excluded from the garden. You've got cherubim placed at the, at the gate of the garden with uh, flaming swords to prevent re-entry. And sacrifice is, uh, as a, it's, the picture is that you're sending an animal as a, set, as a substitute past the cherubim back into Eden, back into the presence of God. Sacrifice in the Old Covenant form is always a reminder of an, enact, an enactment of distance. You know, you wouldn't, an animal wouldn't be needed to go into the presence of God if humanity was unfallen and could just go back into Eden themselves. At the same time, the animal's not only killed and its blood displayed, but the animal's uh, turned to smoke and transformed and ascends to God. That's the, uh, it's not merely the death of the animal, but it's the death of the animal so that, so that the animal can be transfigured and turned to smoke and go to the presence of God. And that's a, that's a re-entry rite. Uh, Torah is both, uh, it accommodates to the post-lapsarian East of Eden condition of humanity, and at the same time recovers some of the nearness that Adam had in the beginning, that uh, humanity had in the beginning. You say in, in this section of the book, the, the dialectic of fleshly weakness and fleshly prowess is not as paradoxical as it might appear. Vulnerability to loss, lack, death, and damage leads to fear, and fear produces protectiveness. Protectiveness produces violence and aggression. Weakness is the source of both boastful displays of strength and virility. Those who live in fear of death and fleshly weakness are thus prone not only to feel feelings of insecurity, low self-esteem, obsessions, perfections, but also ambitiousness, envy, narcissism, jealousy, rivalry, competitiveness, self-conscious, guilt, and shame. So here, I mean, I feel like here you're sort of laying out why the human condition is so tragic. Because, and, and, but yet, there's a commonality and a diversity to the way the tragedy plays out. Yeah. Well, uh, I come at that from a number of different number of different angles, uh, and um, this is come at it hashtag stoichaic. <laughs> yes, well, I will. I'll do that. Uh, part of that was uh, in, at base. That's a that's an effort to try to uh, capture what Paul says about flesh and the, the the range of things that Paul says about flesh. And I think what Paul is saying about flesh is against the backdrop of. Uh, what uh, the old te- the, the Old Testament uh, the way that the Old Testament uses that language sometimes Paul talks about flesh and the Bible talks about flesh generally in terms of uh, weakness and vulnerability um, you know flesh is is mortal uh, but then Paul in the works of the flesh are works of aggression and violence I, I spend a, a, a bit of time in the book talking about circumcision and talking about the institutions of Torah being both an accommodation to the condition of humanity outside of Eden which is um, you know, if, if Paul has a one-word description of that condition for humanity, it's the word flesh. But the original ordinance of Israel, even before Torah comes in, is circumcision, which is a cutting off of the flesh. It's after the cutting off of flesh that, uh, paradoxically, that Abram becomes potent. There's a symbolic removal of his reproductive capacity, uh, which makes him, uh, you know, kind of erases him from the dead. It's it's uh, life from the dead, life from his own dead body, life from the dead uh, womb of uh, Sarah, uh, and that all happens. Potency is the result of the removal of flesh. You can see that same kind of thing happening in, I think, sacrifice is partly that. It's taking the flesh of an animal, and the flesh of the animal is turned into something else. It's put in the fire of God, and it's turned to smoke, and it's united with the fire of God. So it's it's a pictorial way of uh, d- displaying the transformation of flesh into spirit. And then when you get to the New Testament, uh, Jesus' work is described in at Colossians 2, when Paul talks about the circumcision of Christ, uh, I think N.T. Wright is correct, and other commentators who say that that's not referring to Christian circumcision, meaning baptism as a as a ritual, but rather the circumcision that's accomplished on the cross. 
in on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, who has taken flesh, which means not just our human body, but our human condition as a whole. And uh, he takes that to the cross, and that is cut off. Uh, flesh is cut off on the cross. Or uh, Romans 8 would be another passage that, that describes this, um, where God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us who walk by the Spirit. So the cross is a God's the culmination of God's warfare against the flesh. It's where God himself takes flesh so they can take flesh, flesh that kills, flesh that's mortal, and he takes that mortal flesh to death and raises it up in, in the spirit. And you say basically what would Torah look like if it was in flesh and human being? It would look like Jesus. And we saw it and we didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a sense in which it's a rejection of the law. And yet it seems that the grace that Jesus procures is the only way that we can provide what the law demands. I mean, we have to be animated by the light of love and the lifeblood of the spirit. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that uh, this came clear to me as I was writing the book, something that had kind of been in lurking in the back of my mind before, but just kind of clicked together. I, I had often characterized the old covenant orders as a covenant of exclusion, uh, which is clearly true at one level because uh, you have God's house in the midst of Israel, but nobody can go in except priests, and nobody nobody can go into the immediate presence of God and stay. Nobody nobody spends time there. Uh, so there's, in, in an obvious sense, it's a covenant exclusion. But I think that's really just a reflection of the post edenic situation that Torah enters. So that's not something that Torah in Torah enacts. That's something that Torah accommodates to. And what's actually happening in the Torah is the opposite. I think you know God God comes down from Sinai enters the house that Israel's built at the foot of Sinai, and now he's tabernacled himself in the midst of Israel. He's He's got his own residence, his own address in the midst of Israel, and he's opened up his house as a place of welcome and hospitality. It's not, uh, and so the institutions of sacrifice and other institutions of the Torah are designed to allow Israel to draw near to God. So there's, it's an incarnational move, in other words. Torah is not, Torah is not a, Torah is not a withdrawal. Uh, Torah is an incarnation. Uh, it's a tabernacling uh, of God in in a tent, not yet in the flesh. So when you look at the Torah that way, then you look at the ministry of Jesus, then God comes in the midst of Israel, and he opens up his house as a place of festivity for Israel. The God of Israel comes in human flesh in Jesus, and he comes eating and drinking and sharing meals with uh, tax gatherers and sinners and Pharisees and others, any others who would come and have a feast with him. So in that sense, the uh, Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of of Torah, but as you said, the, that fulfillment looks to the Pharisees like a like a violation uh, because they had. I think there's a distortion of what the intention of Torah was. Torah had become a, a, a means of exclusion rather than an incarnational uh, covenant, and Jesus comes to bring that incarnational dimension to fulfillment. And the Jews want to protect their Storkaic order hashtag Storkaic order. Hashtag. Uh, yes. There it is. In in order to, uh, uh, so he comes to fulfill Torah, uh, to bring the intention of Torah to its completion. But the the Jews, not just the Jews, but humanity as a whole, rejects rejects him. They don't want God near. They don't want God coming. Uh, they'd rather have God on their own terms or God locked away somewhere. Jesus goes to his death because they're protecting that fleshly order, the storkaic order against uh, its fulfillment. When you talked about the God of Israel coming in flesh, eating and drinking and festive, I was thinking of that line in Talladega Nights where they're talking about which Jesus they like best, you know, baby Jesus. It was like, one of you guys says, I like, I like my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, 
I can party with just an air, it's an air of formality, but it says, I like to party. I like a partying Jesus. <laughs> now, you kind of conclude the book with just a, a sweeping, uh, you, you asked Anselm's question uh, from the 11th century, Curtius Homo, why did God become human? And you kind of, you knit together the soikeia, peace, flesh, the delivery dict. Uh, you talk about sociology, the significance of, of ecclesiology. I mean, it's a pretty, it, it's, a, it's a sweeping conclusion. And it's great. And I encourage all of our listeners to read the book. Now, let's say you're on an airplane and you talk to somebody like that's an accountant or they're a lawyer or, you know, a stay-at-home mom and they are not religious. How do you explain to them their need and how God meets it in Jesus in light of a work like this? Yeah, that's really. Are you good. hoping they've heard the Stoichaic hashtag? So yeah, got some right. Groundwork. I mean, that's that would be a good segue right into the conversation. Uh, I could say you've heard of the hashtag Stoichaia, right? Exactly. Scott and I invented that. I could say, and then <laughs> yeah, the, the I'm conversa- the guy. The conversation with I'm the guy, right? The conversation would just develop from there. Um, you know, I, I think that um, I'm going to I'm going to answer your question kind of a roundabout way. You know, I'm Protestant. I'm a convinced Protestant. Uh, I think the Reformation was a necessary uh, uh, correction to the state of the church in the late medieval world. But the Reformation preaching and formulation of the gospel depended a lot on the state of mind of late medieval Catholicism and the message that the Reformers preach. If you, can, if you want to reduce it, which is you know, risky, but if you want to reduce it, justification by faith. How can, how can a sinful human being be right before a just and holy God? I think the Reformers gave the right answer to that question. But that question itself depends a lot on having certain preconditions, cultural preconditions and theological preconditions. They were quite, these were questions that were thrown up by late medieval, by the late medieval church and answered by, uh, by the reformers. And I just, I don't think we have those preconditions anymore. We don't, we can't, we can't depend on people having any kind of sense of the weight of that question. In some parts of the U S you probably can, you know, evangelism explosion still worked in the South 30 or 40 years ago. I don't know if it does anymore. But at that time, you could still go up to somebody in the South, at least, and say, you know, do you know where you're going to spend? If you died tonight, do you know where you would go? And they would know what that question meant, and they would have some sense that this could be a problem. I just don't know that we're there anymore. So I, I, and I'm, the, my project is not an effort to kind of accommodate to the current, current state of things, but I think that hashtag Storkea does give us certain kinds of ways of answering the question, what, what, what is the need, what does the cross accomplish, that I think actually does address some of the felt concerns of uh, contemporary human, contemporary Americans, contemporary Westerners, maybe. And I think particularly, you know, community is a big buzzword, uh, but the sense of alienation and estrangement, the fragmentation of life, the fragmentation of families, uh, the fragmentation of communities. Uh, those are the kind of felt disruptions that people have. And one of the, one of the conclusions of the approach that I'm taking is that, I mean, you could put it, you could put it very, it's, it's an oversimplification that gets, gets at, at the truth. Jesus died and rose again so that we could become table companions uh, of the living God, of the creator. In other words, Jesus died so that we could have Eucharist. Hashtag Storkea is involved in that. You know, Jesus is not just, Jesus is a human being passing by the cherubim and entering into Eden. And he takes us back in. He takes us into the presence of God where we can sit ourselves and eat and drink without fear, without any kind of exclusion. We're in the presence of God uh, receiving 
Christ's body and blood and the spirit. You know, you could take various contemporary trends and develop or have a conversation about the gospel and, and Jesus' work as, uh, as a founding, uh, his founding death and resurrection that forms a new kind of family and a new kind of community, which is the church. Yeah, so uh, the only possibility for the brotherhood of man is the common union with uh, Jesus, our brother, who is the son of the father. But, but the brotherhood issue is, you know, the, the community issue might be a way to get into, into the force of the gospel in a way that speaks to contemporary people. Peter, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Once again, people can find you at the Theopolis website which you mentioned, right? You want to say the URL again? Yes, theopolisinstitute.com. And please, everybody, go get Delivered from the Elements of the World by Peter Lighthart. It's published by InterVarsity Press. It's a great book. Thanks, Peter. Thank you very much, Scott. sleep still in their eyes And they'll jerk from their beds And think they're dreaming But they'll pinch themselves and squeal And they'll know that it's for real The hour that the ships come in And they'll raise their hands saying we'll meet all your demands But we'll shout from the bow Your days are numbered And like Pharaoh's tribe They'll be drowned in the tide And like Goliath They'll be conquered All right, back on the Mockingcast Here we are again And I am here with one usual suspect Sarah Condon in Houston, Texas Never going to give you up, never going to let you down. Uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> guessing that is a reference to uh, our potential next first lady, Melania Trump. Oh, love it. I just like want to use that in, in so many facets of my life right now because it's just, I mean, it was already fair game before, but now, I mean, the possibilities are endless. So she next is, sermon, I'm going to work it in. She's a lovely woman with great fashion sense. She is. Absolutely. And a supportive spouse. And I'm not being cynical at all. And I really am not. <laughs> and we have an unusual suspect, uh, someone who was a guest previously, Jeff Holsklaw. Welcome back. Not this time sitting in for the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird Ministries, David Zoll. Jeff Holsklaw, Reverend Dr. Jeff Holsklaw, pastor, professor, father, husband, mm-hmm. friend, and podcaster. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you. I don't know what to add now to that. Clergy no. spouse, right? Clergy, Clergy spouse. Oh, yeah. Clergy spouse. I am the, the husband to the pastor. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. You are both clergy spouses. We yeah. are. To clergy are. spouses. You are both, you're like, it's just, wow. This is going to rip just a hole do like in the space-time continuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our yeah, kids absolutely. are going to be all messed up, right? Oh, yes. Double. Double, double. <gasps> yep. So... Jeff, Sarah started as like a repeat guest, and then she wound up in the in a co-host. Who knows? This might mean big things for you. Big things. Big things in the mocking universe. Oh, yeah. okay. So we I'm might trapped. fire David Zoll. I mean, you know, it could happen. Get rid of the dead weight. <laughs> He's, not He's not here. He's not here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Get the piano off That's our It's all back. part of uh, our master plan. That's Take right. Over. Mutiny. So before we get into... The highlights of another weekend. I just want to say that we did have a somebody sign up as a thousand dollar a year contributor, and we're going to feature them in an interview next week. A short interview profiles in in our listenership, and we thank you. You know who you are, as uh, Billy Crystal used to say in Fernando's Hideaway. He also used to say, "It's more important that you look good than to feel good." <laughs> 
so we, but also, I just, so thank you for all your generosity and support to our listeners and to Mockingbird readers. And I want to begin before again we get into the meat of the segment. I want to do a shameless plugs moment. Jeff, tell us about like stuff you're doing that our listeners should know about, and or you know stuff that's worth them connecting to. Well, uh, shameless plugs, I guess, would go. I work at Northern Seminary. I love it. We're doing a bunch of new programs. Uh, but we're also, uh, Dave Fitch and I, he's a, a co-pastor. He helped plant the church that I'm a pastor at, as well as a professor at Northern. We co-host the Theology on Mission podcast, where we uh, talk about all things life, God, and everything. And uh, he's, you know, and Scott, you've actually been practicing your impersonation of him for a while. So we're going to get you to sit in uh, pretty soon. As uh, the Fitch substitute, I mean, Holscott, come on! Yeah, people, people aren't <laughs> care about this. Keep it moving. People are falling asleep, Jeff. I mean, he's like the theological Jack Nicholson on cocaine. That's uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty accurate. But I would recommend it. it's a great podcast if you like theology and care about the mission life of the church. It's great. I mean, it's one of the best podcasts out there in that sphere for my money. That's uh, my story, and I'm sticking to it. Oh, thank you very much, Sarah. You had a piece come out in the Living Church, which I think we're going to throw in another weekend. I think it's being if 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 the website gets back up live, we've had tech. There's been our server, even though we use Gmail, <laughs> we've been compromised somehow, and the site is struggling. Impossible. So, Sarah, you yeah, tell tell us a brief word about your piece. Yeah, so it's a piece I wrote um, about frustrations that I have with. Uh, the way that seminaries are training clergy people to go into ministry. Um, and, you know, I speak out of, certainly out of my own experience. I attended Yale Divinity School, which was a wonderful education in a lot of ways, but um, also really heavily agended in a lot of other ways that I think impact the kind of priests that they're turning out there. I just have a lot of concerns about it. And obviously, I feel like I must not have much to lose professionally because <laughs> because people either really love the piece or they really hated the piece. But, um, you know. Put me down in the really love the piece category. Well, I appreciate that. That's kind. <laughs> and I've attended two seminaries and I felt like the for two separate degrees, I wasn't like just, hey, I'm sick of this one. But um, And I felt like that what you said was by and large, right on the money. I appreciate it. You know, I mean, the thing I didn't say in the piece is that um, between my husband and I, we've got six seminaries that we've either gotten a degree from or attended. So, um, yeah. It's topper. I mean... In <laughs> my family, we've got six. We have a, my husband just keeps getting master's degrees. But, I mean, we've got a lot of experience in seminaries. So, yeah. Do you have mugs from all of those? We do. I mean, you got to have a mug. Well, That's mugs, good, good. and my husband's very into the beer you know, the tumbler. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we've good. got that. We've got good. t-shirts. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've got... The whole thing. The whole the night. The whole thing, yeah. And I want to shamelessly plug that I was on... I was the Gentile of the Week on Unorthodox, which is... I'll tell you, if our, to our listeners, if you are not listening to the Unorthodox podcast, you're missing out. It's from Tablet Magazine. It's three Jewish journalists who uh, are just unbelievable. Uh, Mark Oppenheimer, Leah Leibowitz, and uh, Stephanie... But Nick, who all are just uh, and she, Stephanie's going to come on the show in a couple of weeks because awesome. I've had Mark and Leon, so we're going to get the trifecta. It's like Very nice. the Jewish Trinity, and yeah, so it was a great show. I mean, I was on, I was actually with um, another Jewish. Uh, the, the Jewish guest was Katie Lazarus, who was just unbelievable, uh, r- really funny, and and she's an amazing interview show. She's interviewed like John Stewart, Sarah Silverman. So yeah, check it out, Unorthodox. 
Go. You could just uh, search Unorthodox on iTunes or go to Tablet Magazine, uh, unor- the Unorthodox tab, and you can find it. So it was a great time. Done with the shameless plugs segment of the show. On to another weekend. Let's go, Sarah, to your hometown because you you were the one that brought this to Mockingbird's attention this week. This piece about Don Knot. It's like Aladdin and his magic lamp. You don't believe that, huh? Aladdin's lamp? Did you ever see that lamp? What? Did you ever see that lamp? No. If you never saw that lamp, then don't talk. <laughs> Bernie, are you going to stand right there in front of me? A grown man able to read and drive a car and have dates and everything and tell me that you believe there was such a thing as Aladdin's magic lamp that you could rub and a genie would come out of it and do things for you? I never saw that lamp. I do not know what spirit was evoked by that lamp and therefore I cannot discuss the subject intelligently. Yeah, but do, do you Another thing, yeah, another yeah, Another thing is atmosphere. Atmosphere. Aladdin's lamp was rubbed over in Arabia. Now, the atmosphere in Arabia is a little bit different than the atmosphere here in the southeastern United States. (laughs) And so, and so, because I am not familiar with the atmosphere... And never having seen the lamp, I cannot discuss the subject intelligently. Yeah, but... Uh, listen, Did you ever see that lamp? Well, no. Then don't talk. Well, well Don't talk. Yeah, I can't believe I'm the only one that pitched this to you guys for As the Weekends. But um, my host... No, in, fair, in, my, in my defense, I, I zealously responded. You did. I, I, I was you into called it. me. I was into it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm into it. Um, so this was a piece about Barney Five, kind of just a sweet little editorial piece. Uh, somebody wrote uh, Billy Wadkins, who is a writer for my hometown newspaper, The Clarion Ledger, straight out of Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and this piece is about how uh, so the actor who played Barney Fife is Don Watts. And Don Watts' hometown of Morgantown, West Virginia, is years after his death, has finally raised uh, 50000 dollars to have a statue of him made to be put in town. It was just a really sweet piece. I mean, I, I grew up watching the Andy Griffith show. I still watch it sometimes and love it. And what I loved about this piece, and yeah, exactly... <laughs> I can't whistle, but Scott can. Um, what I loved about this piece is that uh, the the writer interviewed Doss's daughter for a lot of it. So a lot of it, her name's Karen. A lot of it's her talking about her father. And she talks about kind of what a pretty traumatic, difficult childhood he had, a very difficult relationship with his father. Um, and I kind of loved how she wrote about what a wonderful father he was to her. It was just very beautiful to have a, a fuller picture of this guy who has just entertained generations of people. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, she said that her dad grew up mm-hmm. as a lonely child. He was a real loner because his three brothers were so much older and they were rough scavengers. Uh, this Great Depression era childhood. And mm-hmm. he was an accident, right? He he was born last. His mother, Elsie, was 39. And... His father blamed him and harbored anger that seemed to be out of control at the time. And uh, in a book about this, uh, written about Don Knotts, they asked, do you remember when you were in your nappies and your father used to hold a knife to your throat? And Don did not. They said only in therapy. Years later, did the memories come flooding back. He He spent his first years living in fear of the monster yeah. on the couch. It's, it's hard to believe it's the same guy on the show, right? It's really amazing but and he talks about how his mother was the the person that offered this redemptive force there was like this quote about you know well why did you end up becoming an actor well because my mother said that i could you know so 
It's it's always lovely these people that we see and are famous and we believe you know that's all that they are and we forget that they're just like us and they have this whole full narrative that's brought them to where they are um full of redemption and love and also pain so i just liked it i thought it was a nice piece yeah she says that and she's also an actress yeah and a comedian i think and so hey maybe if hey if you're listening karen knotts karen yeah. uh we'll have karen knotts we'll have you on the show because i you sound like an incredibly interesting person she said he was always, he was a wonderful father. He was always making my brother Thomas and me laugh, stretching his arm out mm. as if we were going to lean against the wall and miss it. He'd be in a restaurant, take out his wallet and pull a couple of $1 bills out. He'd say, how did these things get in here? And toss them so over great. his shoulder. <laughs> and Sarah, one of the only states she's never played, she performs this one act play, one woman play. Uh, t- tied up in knots about Don Knotts. One of the only states she's never played is Mississippi. She'd love know, to do right? it. Let's get your people make it happen. To her people stater. and get this happening. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to like call out places I grew up with. It's the only professional theater. <laughs> get it together, new stage. <laughs> hey, get it to- get it together. <laughs> All right. All right. If you want me to claim my humble beginnings, get Karen Knotts there. The Andy Griffith Show, starring Andy Griffith, with Ronnie Howard, also starring Don Knotts. Now, on to Redemptive Celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) This comes to us... Or not yet uh, redeemed. ...via The Atlantic, and this is about the, the, the Kanye West, Taylor Swift... Feud. No, what's interesting is I was reading this. I forgot that. I mean, this went back to like when he like bum rushed the stage, right? When she won the Grammy and he didn't, which is, uh, you know. Uh, Maybe that was planned too, right? For, fortune favors the foolish, I suppose. I don't know. But I mean, that's a bold move. But then, you know, apparently there's this feud between the two of them and it's spinning out of control. And Taylor is upset. Taylor Swift, because she has lost control of the narrative. Full disclosure, I'm a Taylor Swift fan. So it's hard for me to read this with <laughs> Is any it? Like, so but. how do you read this? Because I read this and I was do like, shame on her. Like, she's lied about a conversation she had with him. And then she just goes, P.S. Feminism. Like, shame on her. All right. Maybe, maybe it's like, you're right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Why. Maybe I do. Yeah, I did. I guess I did feel that way. I think I just edited it out later. Like, just now. Like, I think I forgot that you're right. I did think that. But I, I, I like her. Yeah, I don't know. Scott only likes love if it's totally. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 so Jeff, do you have, I mean, we're, no, okay. So, 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 so like, you've come down firmly on one side of the feud. It's basically, now what was the context? Basically, they had a conversation about the lyrics to right. his song, right? right? And of course, what you do, I do this with right. Lindy all the time. I have Lindy's Snapchat record. Uh, all every conversation I have, so they can play them. But I mean, apparently Kim Kardashian is vid- or no, just vidding on his, her phone, maybe or whatever. And she was sending out via Snapchat clips of the thing. But basically, so Kanye like calls her to kind of like talk about like some of the feud and say, "Can I use you? Can I say I think we might still have sex?" As one of the lyrics in the song. And apparently Kim Kardashian videoed the whole thing, and so Taylor said this never happened. I Taylor, like I know her, Miss Swift. 
It was, it was so funny. On <laughs> Bill Maher once, years ago, Christopher Hitchens of Blessed Memory was... Uh, it was one of the it was the panelists and Mo, Mo Steph was on there and before Mo Steph say anything he says before you speak I don't want to be rude but please may I ask you may I call you Mister <laughs> most definitely <laughs> so, so polite so I just, I'll just call her Miss Swift uh, Miss Swift apparently looked like she got caught in a lie and I had trouble I think I'm aging I had trouble. F- like figuring like following after that because it seemed like this exchange of sort of he said she said she said so we had the two she's and right. he taylor kanye and kim kardashian jeff yeah. give yeah, us yeah, the yeah, wisdom yeah. of solemn here yeah. Dude, cut the so, baby in I, half what do we do what do we do here <laughs> well well so i think there's like two layers one is like the the public persona layer that and then the private reality and uh you know, of these phone conversations and are, ha, were they kind of gaming the system, create a feud, sell more records between the two of them, but oh, we kind of planned it and I wasn't really offended, but I'll pretend to be offended. Right. So then that, that layer gets peeled off and then she uh, doesn't, doesn't like that look for her. So then, you know, you know, so she's, oh, really it was a feminist thing. It was the B word. I was really offended about that. Right. So there's that kind of uh, problem, but I think like for me, it kind of reveals this other layer, which I think, uh, you know, the Atlantic was trying to put, uh, their finger on yeah. which is the she's still trying to control the narrative about herself and i just thought that idea of trying to control your narrative is such an interesting idea and really like we only hear that said about like pop stars and politicians and then athletes right when something bad happens or when they're your 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 uh your idea of who this person is gets shattered then the person has to go into this damage control and they often say oh well now you have to control the narrative or you have to manage your image and things like that. Now, I think all of us do that, but I just think the idea of trying to control your own narrative is so, uh, it's just so interesting, but it's like, it's so applicable, like as, you know, as people and certainly as like ministers and things, like we see people doing that all the time, right? This is like the, 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 the first statement after the fall. Well, well, God, uh, it's this woman that you gave to me, right? This is Adam, you know, trying to recontrol his, his narrative. So, I think that's really the kind of like the really interesting for me is that, you know, all these politicians do that. We all do this, but why do we do that? And it, and really, I think it's just, it's a hopeless, like, yeah, I'm, you I'm, when you hear that in the news too, don't you just totally think like, well, what's the, they have to, what, what, you know, what's going to be the narrative? You just know it's like, you know, I, it's fraud. I, you just tune out. I mean, it's like, it, it, it's basically saying, how are you going to spin this? What kind of, you know. But controlling yeah. the narrative really is probably like controlling the mythology, right? Isn't it like, there's no real narrative here. It's just like the spin or something. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think there's something to that. Well, um, I mean, all I can think of is like in church world, how I've encountered the situation where people will be very sick, but they don't want to be on the spoken prayers because they don't want people to know because they still want to look pulled together. And I'm like, this of all times, right? But I think it happens at every time. Mm. I mean, it's really easy for us to look at this. And Jeff, I think you're completely spot on. Right. Everyone's trying to control their narrative and certainly things like Instagram and other sort of image bearing social media sites allow us to do that in a very specific way. But this is like tales all this time. I mean, everybody just wants to look like they have it together and they're in control of their lives when they're not clearly. So... This just must be so exhaustive for her, right? Like for, I just can't, I can't, it just makes me tired to well, think are, about it. Taylor doesn't bleed. Oh. Well, I mean, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- that is the thing is it's like, it's impossible to control your nerve. Mm. Who are the people that 
that you know or, or experienced, and maybe even Don Knotts falls into this as we were talking about, who don't try to control their narrative. Usually they're the people who have embraced their brokenness. Right. They're not putting on a front. They're like, hey, I blew it today. I yelled at my kids. Like, I'm going to own that. I need to, you know, those, like those people, they're not controlling their narrative. They're just like, you know, so like, that's my longing is that like, let's stop controlling our narratives because it's pointless and let's just be honest. It's like, it's chicken and the egg stuff too. Cause it's like, usually grace is what frees yes. you to not need to control your narrative, but you usually have to like get the humiliation at least to humility to get to grace. So it's a chicken and the egg. kind. We of. just need another narrative, right? I mean, that's kind of like con- <laughs> conversion is right. Conversion is adopting another narrative. Mm. Meta. That's Ooh, meta. That's, that's good, meta, you guys. Dude. He went meta. There we go. So this this next story is like an undo, and so in some ways related from the New York Times, which basically says like that we don't, you know, contrary to to ancient philosophical traditions that go back to Plato, that really we don't know what the heck we're talking about when we when we analyze our own thoughts. That basically that when we're when they talk about this is uh, New York, it's in the New York Times. So basically this piece. The New York Times says that contrary to ancient philosophical traditions, we really don't know what the heck we're thinking, or we're not really that good at no at introspection. And it talks about like through all sorts of neurological research and empirical studies, and you know psychology and, and things like this, that basically w- when you know we're looking at people's faces and trying to read what they're thinking. And we all do that, and you know, we're probably some of us are better at it than others. But it's a crapshoot at best. You're probably not doing it with the odds you are you have at a casino with blackjack, which is fifty fifty. Most of us are not that good at reading other people's thoughts, but we're actually that bad at reading our own thoughts. And that basically, we probably don't know as much about mm-hmm. our inner processes as we think. What are you all thinking right now? <laughs> I th- I thought this was uh this was actually a little painful to read um because this week my husband's gone and um all week he's um at Mission Palooza for the Diocese of Texas and that means what what sixty five year old like <laughs> dominational bureaucrat was like what about they used to do the kids they used to do Lollapalooza I mean what do we have let's let's call let's call this. Something that the young people will enjoy. Mission Palooza. I didn't say it. Bishop Doyle Scott did. Um, so why did I do like a New Jersey gangster accent for a bishop in Texas? Um, but anyway, he's been gone all week, and I've been with the kids. And yesterday, I got in this kind of back and forth with our five-year-old son. We're kind of mean, and I'm like. I get on the phone with my husband last night and I'm kind of going through stuff. I said, well, first I did this and I did this and sister did this. And I realized that like I was completely wrong. You know what I mean? That I was just whatever tired and all these excuses I give myself, but I was completely wrong. But my brain was reading it in the moment is like, I'm a hundred percent justified in this. Um, so when I read this, I mean, it, a little, it was just so spot on as a mom. And I don't know. It also made me think mm-hmm. about the mentally ill um, and how, um, I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of keep wanting to think around that. Like, is it that mm. they aren't even trying to read their thoughts anymore? Like maybe they've just given up on that at this point. Are there something in their brain that won't let, I don't know. It's just, it, this is so fascinating to me. And it's so fitting that, uh, you know, philosophy from the ancient of days is like somehow influencing the way that we like psychologize to people now. It is fascinating to me incorrectly psychologists to people right so yeah right we're in a real yeah right 
Mm, right. Paul, Augustine, what did they know? <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, it's interesting though. You're, I think you're right. And I think what's interesting is to pair this with what we just talked about, Taylor Swift. So like, you're trying to control your narrative and you don't even understand your narrative. You know, like the, the the narrative you're crafting is, you know, we're all, uh, what's, I forget what movie it is with John Goodman. He tells this kid about being an adult. He says, you know, what you don't realize is we're all just making it up as we go along. And, it's all, <laughs> and I think that this, you know, this definitely echoes those sentiments. Money, suit and tie. I can read you like a magazine. It funny, rumors lie. And I know you heard about me, so hey. Let's be friends. I'm dying to see how this one ends. Grab your passport and my hand. I can make the bad guys good for a weekend. So it's gonna be forever. Or it's gonna go and down lastly, we have a book review from David Brooks. Now, I don't know that I've ever read David Brooks doing a book review in the New York Times book review. That's interesting because I was like, what's he doing? What's he doing here? So you tell me. Well, I, I think this is by, he's reviewing this book about love, which is written by Jonathan Lair. It's just, it's called A Book About Love. And he, he's talking about how attachment theory, I mean, in, in the review, I haven't read the, I haven't read the book, the Lair book, but the way Brooks summarizes it is this is a book about love and how basically, you know, attachment theory, which is post-World War II, pretty dominant framework for psychology interpreting human development that you know when you don't attach well as a kid early on in human development you really have a tough time surprise surprise attaching and making emotional bonds with other people and he says actually what's interesting you know there are all these studies like people that had good attachments they did a study in, in at Harvard on men because that's all you need to study is men Harvard. there you go at Harvard your god right <laughs> there you go and Harvard, uh, who came from the most men who came from the most loving homes, homes self-described so attachment probably went well, earned fifty percent more over the course of their careers than people from the un, unhappiest homes, and they were much less likely to suffer from dementia in old age. And as Lair notes, early attachment is more predictive of achievement than any other measurable var- any other variable measured, uh, including IQ scores in this grant study. So. Apparently, I mean, Brooks summarizes that Lair sees faith in God through the prism of attachment. He thinks actually, if you have an insecure attachment pattern in childhood, mm-hmm. you have nearly double the chance of having a sudden religious conversion as an adult. God is the ultimate secure base. And he also sees marriage through that prism. It, marriage isn't about finding your soulmate or your mystical other. It's about finding someone like yourself. Uh, and he, as a study that uh, uh, in 2010... A study of 23,000 married couples found that similarity of spouses account for less than 0.5% of spousal satisfaction. It's about finding someone with steady emotional tendencies and then being stubborn in the face of nagging incompatibilities that will be there at the beginning and will never go away. I'm surprised someone never wrote a love song or ballad with that title. There's still time. There's still time, Scott. We're waiting. How are your how are your attachments, gang? Were are you were, were you healthily attached, children? How's it affecting you? What's your income like as a result of it? Do you feel like if your parents were better, you'd make, you'd made more money? I thought we were just talking about this book review. Like you were like kind of this is like a little bait and switch. You're a good like you know evangelical preacher. Like. Leans back into the couch and think about your childhood. Oh my goodness! Yeah. When my mom and I hug, I'm like, I'll literally whisper in her ear. I'll be like, it's like two skeletons <laughs> hugging because it's just like all like 
elbows and like ribs hitting up against each other. <laughs> I loved this piece. I, I thought, I mean, I, I'm so grounded in motherhood this week because I'm doing a lot of it um, on my own. And um, I don't want to sound, is it Oedipus? Is that the an Oedipus complex? I don't, I don't want to say that. But when I'm mothering my son, he's the older one. And we get in a back and forth little fight like we did yesterday or um, I'm tucking him into bed or I'm you often feel like I'm in this moment teaching him what it is like to be with someone that he really loves. And like I hope in those moments that I'm preparing him to be with a person that he will love for the rest of his life. So I, I really liked this because that's a thought I've had a lot when I'm parenting and um and this validated that I, I can't wait to read this book. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually really wanted to read the book too, but I was confused by Brooks's interpretation of the book. Uh, so, like the attachment stuff is really mm. appealing, and I know there's even a lot of like spiritual formation stuff that are like have kind of used this attachment therapy to kind of understand you know different formative practices and things. Uh, but Brooks seemed really kind of like upset by the conclusion that. Uh, the most enduring love is like this slow, steady kind of persistent kind of presence without any kind of romance. And at the end of the book review, he kind of like, he shuts it down and is like, just kind of what you said, Scott, well, there's no songs written about the slow, steady attachment love. It's all like passion and romance. And so Brooks seems frustrated with the de-romanticized love that Lair was kind of like advocating for. And I just thought that was really interesting because I think, you know, following Chesterton, you know, there's like the thrilling ro- romance of the, of orthodoxy is what he says, but almost like, well, there's this thrilling romance of, of the ordinary. Isn't that where like true love kind of is? And so, but Brooks's review seemed to like want to back away from that and be like, everyone's talking about love as this non-romantic thing, but that's like boring. (laughs) I was like, that says a lot about you, I guess. I don't know. So, Oh, oh, I see your Chesterton and I raise you a Chesterton. When Chesterton also says, you know, that the pre-modern man would rather take two truths in tension than choose one or the other. So like there's room for freedom and like sovereignty. There's room for the, you know, like he's, he's saying like, and I think that Brooks is saying that like, there is truth to like the fact that, uh, you know, that the, the kind of love it takes to end a marriage well is different than the kind it takes to connect a couple. But as Paul Zoll would say, you know, I've heard him say this on a podcast. I think it was the Los Lobos dating tips for guys or something. And he said, you know, that if you have, if you had that deep romantic connection at the beginning and, and it, you lose it later, you can get it back. You can find mm-hmm. it again. But if you never had it, when things are hard, it will be tough to get to ever to get it. And I think there's some, I think Brooks is sort of saying like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater that oftentimes the thing that puts you on the trajectory to the the long sort of thing in the right direction is is passion. We're creatures of, of the passions. It can't just be passion, but it it, you, it probably isn't wise. I think he's saying to sort of you know swing pendulum all the way and sort of just like because this is what dating sites do, right? Match.com compatibility, all this stuff, and you do an algorithm. You can't algorithm. I mean, he says that no one would deny that our early attachment patterns powerfully shape our lives, but romance introduces a new transcendent element. Hard to measure in studies even to understand, and woe to anyone who enters into a commitment without the prof- propelling force of that deep magic. And maybe there's something to that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I do want to say what's so interesting about this layer guy is, I mean, his com- just complete fall from grace in terms of his early career and, you know, 
or fall maybe into fall grace, into grace. But yeah, but but you know, writing a lot, and then there was some plagiarism stuff, and you know, and and uh, David Brooks is asking this question, you know, can love redeem the sins of Jonah Lair? And I found particularly compelling this this piece. He said, you know, during the first sixteen months of Lair's daughter's life, he had never put her to bed, not once. After his disgrace, he had plenty of time and gradually learned how to attune himself to his daughter. So, I mean, I can see where where Mr. Lair would come from this place of the beauty of monotony. You know what I mean? Like the beauty of of the everyday that isn't all that romantic, but becomes romantic in its own way. Do you know what I mean? Like the domestic life mm-hmm. can can sort of the romance of it can hit you, even if it's not romance like we think it is. So, yeah, I mean, it's both and. Yet again, Chesterton. Uh, in Heretics, he wrote an essay, The Wildness of Domesticity, that you can call married life, you know, you can call it conventional, you can call it true, but don't call it tame. Because when you shut that door, you are the king, queen of <laughs> hey, your own hey. kingdom. And it is nuts. It can't give it. it, it <laughs> no, but it's interesting. Not. It's not tame. It's, 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 it is wild. And friends, let me say that history will not end with a bang or a whimper, but with the wedding supper of the Lamb. So uh, it's my hope for all of us out there that uh, the intimate moments with the one we love are a foretaste of that wedding feast here in the here and now. And until that wedding supper, we will be doing this podcast every Friday. Thanks for being with me this evening, Jeff and Sarah. And I will at least talk with Sarah next week on the podcast. And Jeff, I'll probably talk to you like tomorrow anyway. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Or what would really be helpful is drop over to iTunes and give us a rating. Maybe even write a review. Hopefully a favorable one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our listeners. And we thank you for that. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week.